Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. Portfolio construction and risk management are tasks that take you away from where you need to be, building relationships with your clients. Aberdeen Standard Investments can support you by creating bespoke investment solutions. Outsourcing portfolio and risk management creates efficiencies, enabling you to focus on fulfilling the ambitions of both your clients and your business. This podcast is being prepared with cares based on sources believed to be reliable and all opinions expressed are honestly held at the applicable date. However, it is general information only and we accept no liability for any errors or omissions. Let's be prepared without taking into account the particular objectives, financial situation or needs of any investor. Investing involves risk, including the risk of losing capital. It's important that before acting, investors should consider the their own circumstances, objectives, and financial situation. The information's appropriateness to them and consult financial and tax advisors. Investors should consider the PDS available at AberdeenStandard.com before making an investment decision. Products issued by Aberdeen Standard Investments Australia Limited, ABM 59002123364, AFSL number 204263. Hello and welcome to this episode of the XY Advisor Podcast. My name is Fraser Jack, and I'm joined with me by the founder of Women with Sense, uh, Natasha Jansons. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Fraser. Thanks for having me. Oh, fantastic for coming along. And uh, let's let's start with you. Let's start with your history and uh, and where you where uh, why you got into this game in the first place. Oh, uh, yes, my story. It's been a bit of an evolution. So what you may not tell based on my accent is I'm not a true blue brawn Aussie. So I actually migrated to Australia three weeks after my 18th birthday when I fled a war zone in the old Yugoslavia and yeah, ended up coming here, which had always been my dream to do so. But, you know, funny how things happen. And as they always say, careful what you wish for. But I yeah ended up coming here right after I turned 18 and sort of had to hit the ground running with sort of finding my bearings in Australia and sort of learning how to navigate a very different financial system to what I grew up in. Wow. And so tell us about that. Was that you by yourself or with your family? It was by myself. So um, yeah, it was a string of circumstances, but I was living in the old Yugoslavia and in the late 90s, there was a lot of political unrest there. And uh, one day we were getting bombed by NATO. And so my mother to protect me because we were obviously living near the capital and we had a military airport near us, so we were a main target. So she put me on a bus to sort of leave Belgrade as a way of sort of keeping me safe. And from there, I ended up sort of always being one day ahead of the bombs (laughs) and eventually found myself going further north until I crossed the border into Hungary and a few days later found myself locked out because the place had been shut down. We're talking these days a lot about lockdowns and things like that, but for us back then it was uh, for political reasons. And, yeah, I found myself sort of stuck in Hungary, not knowing anyone in Hungary, having limited money on me and not really knowing sort of what to do next. So as luck would have it, uh, my dad had a couple of years prior to that been working in Canberra. So that was the last place really that I knew. So I focused my efforts on figuring out how I could get here. And um, 
yeah, after a little while, made my way onto a plane and here I am. And there you are, still in Canberra. Wow, that's an incredible story and and one of absolute, you know, uncertainty, which is kind of what financial advisors are going through now. There's this whole, not, not, I'm not saying it's directly comparable, but it's, there's a, there was a heck of a lot of uncertainty around uh, where you're going to land and what the outcome's going to be. Absolutely. And look, every experience, it's all relative, but um, it certainly showed me how much we can achieve when we have no other choice. You know, I had always dreamed of coming to Australia, but on paper, it's not something that ever looked like was going to be a possibility for me. So, but I was just so desperate to sort of get to Australia and to create a better life for myself and my family and my future children, that it was always a massive dream of mine. And with that in mind, it meant that I was desperate to sort of cling on to any slight opportunity you know that might arise so even before we left Canberra I had sort of pursued additional studies and I had insisted on doing the tertiary entrance exam which there was no reason for me to do it because you know we thought I could never afford to come back to study in Australia but it was just one of those things that I was like but I just I so desperately want to come here that I'll just take any any inkling of hope and as it turns out it was all those little seemingly insignificant decisions and opportunities along the way that I took that ended up sort of paving the way to make it possible for me to come here so I always say to my clients you know don't dismiss your dreams and your passions because if you have that front of mind, then you'll start to see opportunities come towards you that you otherwise would have dismissed. It's the same way that I'm sure any one of us, when we bought a car, I always give the example, I bought a golf a couple of years ago. Until that point, I never realized how many white golfs are on the streets. It's just, you know, I filtered that stuff out. But now because I was focused on it, that's all I could see. And to me, really, it was the same thing with opportunities for coming to Australia and opportunities for starting a business as well. Yeah, I love the old reticular activation system, which notices things and just deletes and and uh, and gets rid of stuff that you don't need. Um, so, so this is an amazing period of your life. You, obviously, you didn't have a choice in a way, but you, then you had to completely start fresh. You had to, you know, you had to really push yourself out there to go and create new networks and and, and start again. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I had, when I came here, funnily enough, I started off with studying software development because I, at the time, I was just like, I'm just going to do whatever it takes to come here. And software developers were high in demand. And I went, yep, go for it. Let's go and do it. So, you know, it was everything about the journey of where I am today. It was just such a gradual evolution. And yet now when I look back on it, it all served a purpose and everything happened for a reason. It's amazing how the pieces of the puzzle fit together. So I fell very much into an accounting career because, again, that was very much, it was a combination of things that I was good at but also driven by immigration requirements and those sorts of things. But now when I look back on it, coming from a country that was in such political and economic turmoil, you know, we had so many so many unpredictable events happen um, that it sort of developed in me that determination to understand the banking system more because what I found was that we sort of had, you know, the people who were closely related to banking who, you know, were creating wealth, they were sort of going well. And then there was the, you know, general public that was 
really not seeming to have as many options or not much say in sort of what was going on. So I learned very from a young age to sort of have a curiosity around money and to sort of want to understand how, how this financial system works. So one of my earliest money memories is in the well, early 90s in Yugoslavia, we had at the time hyperinflation. I mean, now these days in Australia, we're talking about low inflation or, you know, risks of deflation. We had, you know, the, very much the opposite thing happening and that no sooner did you earn your salary than it completely lost value. So it was interesting to see how people were navigating that environment and how they were surviving. But it also taught me that in times of stress, then people will become desperate to do anything to make their money grow or to survive. And that led them to places of being vulnerable to sort of being exploited and taken advantage of. <clears throat> and a case in point in that was that a private bank had opened up in Yugoslavia that seemed to be the answer to everyone's sort of prayers in that they were offering like these massive sort of interest rates on your saving account. We're talking like several hundred percent, right? And people were so desperate to put their money in that the lines were so long you had to camp overnight just to get in to deposit your money into this bank. And what happened not long after that was that it turned out that it was a Ponzi scheme. So those who got in early and got out early, they, they made a tidy profit, uh, but everyone else ended up losing their money and in some cases losing their life savings. So for me, that was a massive life lesson, you know, already there about diversification and not just blindly following what everyone else is doing and all those sorts of things. But it sort of started to sort of foster that, sort of curiosity about wanting to be closer to the banking system and understand how everything works. So now when I look at it, it's no surprise that even though I started with accounting, I eventually landed in the areas of financial planning because, you know, everything was sort of primed and positioned to sort of lead me to get to where I am today. Yeah, it's no surprise to me that, you know, knowing your story and, and then knowing what you're doing now and understanding that how focused you are on helping people in a vulnerable situation. Absolutely. And this is sort of why I've taken a very different approach to, for example, someone like Scott Pape, you know, barefoot investor that we know has made a massive impact on people in Australia and getting people to take notice of their money. Uh, but I've always felt, again, that it's really important for all of us, you know, as advisors, but also with our clients to encourage that critical thinking and to make sure that they understand how everything works and the reasons behind, even if we are making a recommendation, you know, what are the reasons behind that? So that they're not just blindly following, you know, on a path that someone else has laid out for them, because, yeah, there can be a lot of risk and danger even to doing that as well. Yeah, I like the way you said. Uh, you know, you mentioned the critical thinking aspect of it, and um, and is that is that the basis, I guess, for everything sort of that you do and teach at the moment? Yeah, it absolutely is. So, and a lot of it, even quite often, I'll find clients coming to me, sort of wanting to know what should I do with my money? What should I be doing at the age and stage where I am? So it's been a combination of not just teaching them how to sort of think critically and how to sort of piece that puzzle together, but also to give them that space and permission for them to figure out what is it that's really important to them? What is it that they want to do rather than what they should be doing? And, you know, and we see a lot of that in Australia. We're talking about the tall poppy syndrome, you know, everyone sort of being successful, but also wanting to sort of fit in with everyone else as well. So I spent a lot of time sort of trying to get people to figure out what it is their own journey or in their own path. And then we can sort of 
piece the puzzle together as to how we go and get there. So I always say if you make sure when you get financial advice that you're clear that you're asking the right question because otherwise you'll get the right answer but to the wrong question. I love the right questions conversation. That's the, you know, that's the definition of coaching to me. You know, it's, it's, it's going from what should I do to what should we do to what can we do to, you know, what would you want, what do you want to do and allowing the, uh, allowing the client to be able to get the information and make some, some informed and quality decisions based on just using really clever questions. Exactly. And I think, you know, we've come a long way and advisors talk about, I mean, I'm fairly new to the financial planning profession by comparison, but I know a lot of financial planners now talk about, you know, goals-based advice. And I've gone that step further as far as talking about values-based advice, first figuring out the values, the things that are really important to us that we're really passionate about. Then we'll go and break down the goals um, that sort of evolve from that of what we want to achieve because otherwise what I've found is clients will go and create goals but sometimes they're limited goals just based on what they think might be possible for them and very often it's sort of just well I'm just doing goals based on what will make other people happy you know so that I don't disappoint other people or so that I fit in and I keep up with what everyone else is doing so I always take it back to well what are the values what's most important to you and then we can build from there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You're certainly singing from the same hymn book on that one. That's uh, and then and the other thing is too. You know, values uh, create create goals off the back of values, and and they're certainly not yet financial strategies until well down the track. Um, but let's let's have a chat about what you're doing now. You sort of you've got a few different aspects to your business. Um, do you want to sort of start by just telling us about your business, where it's located, and how you work uh, nationally? Yeah, so my business is based in Canberra, although these days I say it's just sort of, it's based online, it's where where everyone is. Uh, But I started off a company called Sova Financial, Sova being actually a Serbian word, um, which means owls. So when I started off, I I wanted to help people and especially young people sort of to own their home and to be more proactive with the way that they manage their money. So Sova was focused on that sort of bird's eye view and the owl's wisdom and all of that. So I became, obviously I'm an accountant, but I became also a licensed mortgage broker as well as a financial planner because these days there's so much red tape that it was like, well, if you wanted to talk to people about all of that, well, then you have to be licensed about everything. So that sort of ended up leading me down the path of also doing mortgage broking and financial planning at the same time. But not long after I started my business, I also got pregnant with my first child and that was really when the new brand of Women With Sense and perhaps even the secondary business sort of came to be um, because what happened was I started networking more with my mother's groups and that introduced me to the whole sort of idea of Facebook groups and online networking and what I found was that there were a lot of women who were really wanting to take control of their money. They wanted some financial guidance, but they didn't really know who to turn to. And they actually found financial planners and even accountants to be very intimidating. So there was a lot of fear of going, which to me as an accountant caught me by surprise. And they didn't realize that, you know, that was sort of blocking them from going and approaching a professional to sort of get some guidance on it. So in absence of that, they would ask in their mother's groups. And of course, we know that financial planning is heavily male dominated. So it meant that, you know, there wasn't really quite often there wasn't anyone in these groups who was qualified to give them the guidance that they needed. 
So with their input, I said, well, how about we set up a separate group where we can talk about, you know, financial matters and all of that. And from there, we started to do um, catch-ups at a local cafe in Canberra once a month. And we talk about mortgages and super and all those sorts of things. And then word started to spread. I had women from interstate asking, how can we become a part of this? Can I buy your slides? I can't get to Canberra, but I really want to know what you guys are talking about. And so I thought, well, and we had women who weren't mums who said, well, I want to be a part of this too. So yeah, it just sort of grew from there. And I said, well, in that case, let's take this whole platform, let's put it online and let's make it open to women everywhere. And that's how Women With Sense came to be. Wonderful. So from somebody who, you know, wants to take any slither of opportunity and turn it into something that's helpful for people, congratulations. But also born out of the fact that, uh, you know, like trying to uh, provide some scale around this conversation around, you know, being able to offer one-to-one services to, you know, to your financial clients. And then all of a sudden you'd be able to help a lot more people at the same time as trying to, you know, raise a family. That's right. Yeah. It's funny. Again, I talk about, how all the pieces of the puzzle ended up fitting together because one of the greatest things that I ever did surprisingly was learning and studying software development you know I found that that really helped me to get better at breaking down a problem to really get to the core of what it is and how do I sort of fix it and how do I get from A to B but also uh, that introduced me to the whole idea of business efficiency and business analytics and all of that. So how can we be more efficient and how can we support more people? And in these days, how do we use tech to do all of that? So it all sort of culminated together to sort of help me create Women With Sense and then to start learning. I mean, I then fell down the rabbit hole of trying to learn about funnels and webinars and Facebook ads and how do you do all of this so that you can actually start to make it work and make it profitable and make it efficient at the same time. Yeah, there is some fantastic technology out there that can help people. And, you know, you don't have to be a software developer to do it, but it's certainly good to understand these things. Tell us about Women With Sense as a community. Just sort of give us an overview of of what it looks like as a community, because obviously it started off as a a Facebook group, but it's grown to so much more. Yeah, so it's... (sighs) How would I explain it? I mean, it really is a very supportive and it's an online and virtual community. So obviously there is the Facebook group, um, but I've also been very passionate about doing, well, when we were able to sort of live and face-to-face events and and webinars and and those sorts of things, purely from the point of view of doing anything that I can to just get rid of the excuse of saying I don't have the time and I don't have the money to look after my money to go how do we go and do it so um, that fed into my love of travel as well so I was able to start doing workshops in Canberra and then you know go to Sydney and go to Melbourne and hopefully you know once COVID and lockdown is over we can sort of start to expand it even further but um What I do love about it is that it's very supportive. I know in a lot of groups, you know, there can be a lot of judgment, there can be a lot of uh, bullying and that sort of thing. And I haven't really seen that, you know, with this community. Everyone is really helpful and supportive to each other and respectful from that point of view, which which is a really important thing because we attach a lot of emotion to money and there can be a lot of you know shame and judgment and guilt and all of that that comes from it we really don't need other people to go and pile on um, but the beauty of the internet being what it is is that it also enables people who wouldn't normally reach out to support to go and do it because they have the option of anonymity so you know they can go and send me a message or we can post something anonymously on their behalf so that they're still getting the support 
from everyone else without no one, you know, really knowing who they are. And the amazing thing that happens when people share is you start to realize it's not just you. You start to realize everyone else is facing the same challenge. Everyone else has the exact same question. And suddenly the stuff that was blocking you as far as saying, but it's only me who has a tough or it's only me that has this silly question or whatever, that starts to dissipate and it makes them feel that much more confident and empowered to sort of go, oh, okay, well, if that's not a silly question, maybe now I can go and ask this. And it's amazing what happens from there. Yeah, it's breaking down that taboo, isn't it, about money and not being able to talk about it and, that, and to be able to, to do it in a way where, you know, to start with that nobody really knows who you are or with a group of inside a community is fantastic. And all these minor stepping stones along the way because it doesn't just stop there, obviously, you know, it's going to go somewhere else and it could even lead to, you know, somebody walking into a financial advisor's office. Absolutely. So it's this is the sort of stuff that really, oh, I don't know, lights me up and makes me excited to get up in the morning because you realize that you're making a real difference to people's lives. And they'll say, well, you know, because I heard about this or because I read that, I've now gone and managed to avoid facing bankruptcy or I've managed to go and leave an abusive relationship or I've managed to go and invest for the first time and actually, you know, feel excited by it and understand what I'm doing rather than, you know, feeling fearful about it and sort of wanting to jump out the second it goes wrong. Yeah, and it wasn't a Ponzi scheme at the same time. No, that's it. And that's, you know, that's the challenge. And I think, oh, gosh, our role as financial advisors and educators is just going to be ever growing because the financial domain and technology is evolving so quickly so that we're now going to have to be, well, and our clients are going to have to be even savvier to sort of know well, what's an app that's safe and what's a platform that's safe to invest through. You know, oh gosh, there's a new app, which now is a super fund. Okay. Is that a safe thing for me to be going and putting my money to? You know, the number of times that I've heard people say, oh, I went and jumped into this thing because the marketing was so good that, you know, the message just got to me. But now I'm really second guessing that decision. So, yeah, it, it's going to be challenging, but that'll keep us keep us happy and employed. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, uh, you mentioned the workshop um, earlier, which I think is a really unique way for financial advisors to sort of scale up what they're doing in, in a way. How did you go about organizing those workshops? How do you get people along? And, and what sort of tips do you give to financial planners thinking about doing workshops? Yeah. Uh, you know, assuming that we're uh, COVID safe and all that past that. Yeah, that's it. Well, because you can, you know, thankfully these days you can do a workshop virtually as well. But there's such a different energy from people being in the same room together that I didn't really appreciate until I wasn't able to do it. You start to see the difference in how people engage online versus face-to-face. But look, I had never really done workshops before. It was one of those things that, you know, we did very small ones uh, when women would since started where there'd be like 10 or 15 people. Um, and then I ran events where we had like over 100 people going to it. So each of those was a real sort of learning experience as to, okay, what's the dynamic? How does the presentation flow? What questions work well? And how do you engage best with people to sort of find the right size for it? Um, but I did find that it was a challenge to get people along to it. And this is one of those things where people want it. And everything that I've built, it's always been with everyone's feedback to say, well, you know, is this something that you're after? And they'd go, yes, 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 absolutely. But it was the same thing with the online courses as well as with the workshop as to how hard it is to get people to, as much as they go, yes, 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 and I love it. And yes, I'm there for it. And you go, okay, well, we're selling tickets and it's in two weeks. And they go, yeah, I don't know if I can make that. <laughs> 
<laughs> and to me, that was the biggest surprise that I thought, okay, they really want this, you know, and I've done it in so many near different ways. Um, but it's really hard these days to get people to commit to something and to show up. When we all know it, how many webinars have we signed up to that, you know, we then, we're then we keen for it, we have every attention to come to it, but, you know, a work meeting or something else got in the way. So to me that was the really the biggest surprise and the biggest learning. So I think if you're going to start out with doing a workshop, um, it's always worthwhile to sort of start small and test it out. Um, because a lot of the structure of the workshop, you're not really going to be able to gauge until you're in there with the clients and seeing how people respond to the activities and how they interact with it. I think it's also great to have people that you can partner up with so that you can support each other and sort of leverage off each other's networks just to make it easier to sort of spread the word and, and get people along to it. But I think it's a really great way. It's a great way of delivering value to lots of people. It's a great way of making things cost effective. And it's a really great way of building those relationships and getting clients sort of getting them comfortable with you and getting to know you before they take the next step of working with you. Yeah, that's a really good call about getting other people in to, to present. I've seen some um, some planners do some really good work in that space where they're getting other individuals in and uh, and teaming up and, and and all inviting networks and coming along and, and and that way they're really you're meeting and you know you're cross meeting new portions of people. Um, just on this idea that you know people have this fantastic intention to show up and then something else is, steals the priority and then becomes more important. How have you overcome that in a way? Is it just a matter of getting more invites out there, or how have you have you made the turning up and showing up and paying the cost a priority? Yeah, look. Uh... There's a few things, sort of tricks of the trade that you work learn along the way. Uh, one of it is is that if there is a webinar or a promotion, you have to give people a time frame to make sure that they act. Um, I used to make the mistake in the beginning of you know doing a fantastic presentation and then going you know whenever you're ready to work with me, I'm here, uh, and, and that I learned that then people will sit on that and not actually do anything with it. So I think it's really good to have a special offer or something that's going to entice them to go, you know what, I have to make a decision and I have to do it now. The other thing as well that I've found is by getting people to actually pay for something, that's a way of getting them to commit to turning up to it. Because the danger with free events, for example, is that because it's free, I haven't had to make any sort of real commitment that I'll show up show up and that's what we see with webinars it's free it's whatever so I'll just sign up to it and then I'll really five seconds later I'll forget about it so to me even if it's a low cost event or something but getting them to actually purchase it will make sure that they go and commit to showing up and putting in the time and effort yeah some good tips there and also you know like you mentioned the the time frame or giving people a reason maybe even selling out and not in having a certain limited amount of seats available I suppose that's also good when you've got a smaller venue Yes, exactly. So, and this is sort of where it's about getting the messaging right so that you get them excited and you're building up the anticipation for it. Um, even simple things like I found, where do you direct the traffic for it? I know people often when they're promoting events, they're directing people straight to the website. The challenge with that is once I've gone and looked at your website, it becomes really hard for you to go and remind me to go back to it. So things like if your network is on Facebook as mine is a lot, I found that by promoting an actual event within which the link is there, people will then mark it as interested. They'll have it there as a placeholder and there's opportunity there for me to continue marketing to them and 
getting their interest, getting them to share, as they start seeing more people interested in it, that's now going to drive that fear of missing out. And it's the social proof. Oh, well, others think this is a worthwhile thing, so I might go along to that. So they were all, you know, little things that I just had to learn through trial and error and seeing sort of what what took and what didn't. Yeah, that's really interesting using Facebook um, for those types of events and see who's um, who's interested in, or, or, or maybe, and you might want to, um, you know, get their email address and, or give them more information. Um, that's, that's really cool. Thank you for that. And also when it comes to charging sort of, are you talking about, do you, have you done some research on a price range or, and a length of time that you've got the, the, the event for? I have. And it's really interesting. I used to come at it. I had this belief that it had to be as low cost as possible because it's so unaffordable. It's so hard for people. And, um, and we need to make it as affordable as possible. And in actual fact, what I found, I actually found it easier to sell tickets to events that cost more than the low cost ones. Now, part of that may well be that because it's low cost, people assume that they're going to be sold to, or they assume that it'll be poor quality and those sorts of things. You also then look at what's the demographic that you're targeting as well with that, in that often if it's too low cost, it'll attract those that are just trying to get as many freebies as they can, but they weren't ever really interested in going and becoming a financial planning client or something like that. So again, it becomes about trial and error, but at the end of the day, it's that key message. You know, it has to be, you know, there has to be a clear motivated reason. They have to be clear on what is in it for them. What am I going to get out of going this? Like, it's great that the speakers are experienced. I expect no less that the speakers will be experienced, but I need to understand how's my life going to change because I've gone and spent this hour or this day with you. And this is where I really love social media from that point of view, because tools like Facebook make it very easy for you to test your marketing message and start to see in like real time what is resonating with people and what isn't. So you can go and take a campaign, you can test an image and quite often what I'll do is I'll have the same script, but I'll just change the first line. And it's amazing how much even just that first line had changed how many people were going to come to this event versus the number who sort of went, oh yeah, and and sort of walked past. So, you know, even if Regardless of where you're marketing it, um, I think it's useful to utilize social media in that way as far as just market testing and sort of getting that instant feedback before you go and build the workshop or start really marketing that event. Yeah, fantastic tips. And I I do like the idea of pricing for value to show that there is going to be value in the workshop, um, not just pricing for uh, to try and get bums on seats. Thank you. Now, now let's talk about that. So you run the workshop and, and obviously the workshop um, that you've run is the, um, uh, the you know, the, the, the money power workshops, the, uh, what's the Wonder Woman, what do you call it? The Wonder Woman money Wonder power Woman work. Money power, that's right. <laughs> yes. Now off the back of the, uh, the book that you've written, do you want to give us a quick uh, chat about that? Yeah, so, oh gosh, I can't believe it's already been two years. My goodness. So two years ago, I self-published and released a book called Wonder Woman's Guide to Money, which was really aimed at, you know, the modern busy day Wonder Woman, the women that are juggling so many things that we say, I don't know how she does it. She's a Wonder Woman. And the challenge for those Wonder Women is that it's hard to find time to deal with financial matters because it's like there's so many 
demands on their time, something has to give. And the easiest thing to give is something that's not immediately pressing, you know, things like our super. Well, I can, you know, that's a fair way away. I can just go and do that another time. So I thought, what's another way that I can get these these women engaged and get their attention and get them to learn about money in a very easy and time efficient manner? So the book became it. And then off the back of that, what it really did was free me up to talk more about in the workshops about the psychology of money and how we make financial decisions because as you well know you know financial IQ and financial EQ they go hand in hand and prior to having the book I sort of was I didn't even realize it at the time but I was a bit restricted and sort of wanting to teach people as much practical information as I could so it was almost like bombarding them with all this information that can become overwhelming but having it in the book form sort of meant that I could say well you can just reference the book and go and check out the chapter on mortgages but today let's talk about something even more exciting and um, yeah and so that's sort of what fed into the Wonder Woman's Money Power workshops and yeah I'm really thrilled with how that's been going. Fantastic now a couple of quick questions um, on the book as in, if somebody wants to write a book, talk us through that self-publishing process. How long did it take you to write it? Did you just lock yourself away or was it something you've been working on for a while? Oh, it was really interesting because I'd been saying for a little while now that I was going to do a book. And even now when I look back on it, from me committing to actually doing it, it the entire process, it took about a year to go through it because there were a few rounds of edits and then you go through the whole cover design and all of that by the time it's published. So now that I know that, I was like, wow, you know, lucky <laughs> just as well that I did did it when I said I was going to do it. And I remember when I started on the journey going, oh, you know, I can knock over a book in a month. Yeah, no. Um, maybe I could have, but the quality of it would have, <laughs> would have been dubious. A, a blog maybe. <laughs> That's right. So, and that was the thing. Every single time I had a sort of deadline to get back to the publisher with the next round of it it was always down to the wire because I was always you know there were so many other demands and I had client work and everything else so time would just run away from me so that's why I was really glad that I had committed to it and actually engaged someone to support me with it and was like all right well now I have deadlines it has to happen there's no other way around it But what worked in my favor was that I already had a ton of content. You know, I had a whole lot of blogs that I've been running for years. I had online courses that had been transcribed. So all of the information was there, which meant that I was able to sort of get someone to start to just cut it all together. And then just with each round of edits, it just became more and more refined and then finally it became a finished book. So I'd say if you're thinking of doing it, Absolutely. Just be prepared for the time involved and also be clear about why you're doing it. So for me, it was about a getting the information out to the clients, but also because I wanted to take the next step of starting to do corporate workshops and corporate speaking and those sorts of things. So the book was a tool to help me in that process. If you're doing it because you want to become a Scott Pape bestseller, you know, just again, that's fine to have that goal, but then recognize that Scott Pape had, I don't know how many people know it, he had previously self-released a book, um, I think 10 or 15 years ago. So, but he didn't have a list, he didn't have the audience. So he learned from that and then spent years building up the list so that when he 
next time released it, it sort of, it went gangbusters. So, you know, as we say to our clients, be clear on what it is and why you're doing it. And then you can line up the ducks from that. I see too many people wanting to publish because, you know, we might think that it's a way then either of quickly raising our profile or making money from the book sales. But really these days, there's not really any money to be made unless you are a Scott Pape style sort of bookseller, then you'll be raking in the millions. But otherwise it's, there's lots of other reasons to publish the books, but it's not necessarily as profitable a venture as someone might think. Yes. I think I've heard that before a few times, you're not, you're not doing it to sell lots of copies. Um, now you mentioned that you had a couple of online courses before the book um, and then you had all those, the transcriptions done from those. Tell us about those online courses. Yeah, so uh, the first course, which very much fed into the book itself, is called Making Sense of Money. So it was a 12-week online program, which really is financial planning one-on-one. So getting people to go from the stages of goal setting to then managing their cash flow and then prompting them to go and look at all the other areas of their finances, like reviewing their life insurances, their estate plan, their superannuation, and putting a plan for investing. The other course that I did, which was a low cost sort of a course, we used to call it as a tripwire, um, was Sense and Sensibility, which was just a two week money mindset and budgeting course. So really aimed at those people who are struggling with their cash flow and the budget, just talking them each day through one simple thing that they can do just to help shift their spending habits. So it might be something like going and reviewing and journaling, just keeping a journal of where they're spending their money day to day so that they can understand what habits they have. We might not even realize how much we are creatures of habits until we sort of put pen to paper and have a look and go, oh, wow, okay, so I do spend this amount every morning, you know, going and having a coffee and then meeting friends for lunch and so on. Yeah, wonderful. Now you've obviously done some pretty um, intense online marketing stuff because just the, just the use of the word tripwire tells me that you, you've done some fairly <laughs> intense stuff. So for those that, that don't know what the tripwire is, obviously it's just a product for you know um, not necessarily for profit, but to try and get hold of someone. Like it's a small, very low cost, easy decision. Uh, the very first product to purchase before you sell them the next course. That's right. So it was that whole idea that, you know, how are you going to build a list? So you start off with, you know, having something valuable that's free that you can offer to people in exchange for the email address. And then I was really just experimenting with, you know, how do we then go about it? So there's those schools of thought that say, well, you know, straight after they've done that, you want to encourage them to make a purchase from you. So you might make it a $1 or $7 or something like that course or an ebook that they can purchase just to sort of get the ball rolling from that point of view. So yeah, I've spent a lot of time over the years just getting an understanding of how all that works and just really learning it for myself and, you know, taking joy and experimenting and testing and measuring, which is ultimately what the tech these days enables you to do. Good old test and measure. Now, I just want to also mention the fact that um, you've, you've, you've done an amazing job on naming your products. And when I say products, you know, your courses, your book, those sorts of things. Um, you haven't once me- mentioned, you know, a financial strategy or, you know, a, 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 a type of product. You're not, we're not talking about superannuation and we're not talking about investments. We're talking about some really smart, you know, sense and sensibility, um, making sense with money, real consumer uh, focused or, you know, the, the whole user experience scenario, things that the consumer, the end user is actually, you know, thinking in their own head. 
That's right. So again, it, these are not things that I knew sort of starting out, but I did spend a lot of time in understanding the branding and the marketing message and, you know, what the business is going to stand for and really understanding the clients and, you know, what's the best way to engage with them. So if they find that, you know, and it's even down to how I present myself in the clothes that I wear, because again, if I understand that my target market is, you know, feeling intimidated by, you know, someone in a suit and financial matters, well, then the worst thing that I can do is come across to them like that. And if I use words like superannuation and investing and things that are freaking them out and triggering them, that's really not going to encourage them to go and take the next step. So, yeah, I spent a lot of time learning how to effectively communicate and even have that translate into the way that I write the blogs and articles these days as well. It's not the way I would have written it once upon a time, but I've learned um, how to speak in a way that will actually resonate with, um, with my clients rather than it resonating with me and my colleagues. Yeah, exactly right. Now, you mentioned blogs and articles, and obviously you produce a lot of blogs and articles. How long have you been doing that for and how often do you publish? Oh, goodness me. So I've been doing it since the very beginning. So since Women With Sense launched in 2016, um, I've just been a content machine. These days, uh, I do a lot of podcast interviews and media interviews and those sorts of things as well. And all of that has really helped with the business's online presence and Google rankings. So these are things that started to happen before I even understood what SEO was. Um I just thought, what is a way that I can start to reach more people and get more of a message in the community? So I focused on, you know, responding and utilising um, websites like Source Bottle, where, you know, journalists will often go and call out for media comments. So I was very actively um, engaged on that. And now it's at the point where people know me. So now when they're asked to write an article, they'll think about me and give me a call and say, oh, I'm working on this. Would you mind to contribute? So doing all of that has really helped a lot with the online presence. I know a lot of people are focused on, you know, they'd love to be on radio or on TV. And I've done all those things. But what I found is that those sorts of interviews are great for the ego. They're not really good for growing your business because, you know, again, someone hears about you on the TV, whether or not they go and Google you is a different thing. But having blogs and constant articles that are going to be shared in places where your name and your business name is quoted, that really makes a big difference when someone goes to Google for the particular area of advice or topic that they're after to increase the odds of your name popping up and being found. Yeah, this is a really interesting one, the, the value of the link, right? Because obviously you read a blog, it's very easy. There's a highlighted piece there. It says, here's Natasha, and you can click on that and you move through. But you're absolutely right. If I'm if I'm driving in the car and I hear it uh, on the radio or even on a podcast, it's very difficult to then stop and uh, you know remember what it was I was supposed to be Googling. No, that's right. So it's again, it's one of those things that we go and spend so much time doing. I remember when I first started in business going and putting out an ad in the paper and we just sort of assume, oh, well, someone will see it. And the first thing they'll do is they'll take action. But that is not what happens. And when I think about myself, how many things do I hear about and I'm marketed to? I don't always, you know, drop what I'm doing to go and do it. I have to have been prompted a few times. So that's sort of where that brand awareness and making sure that, you know, you are writing articles, you've been quoted by different people, people are sharing that information. If it pops up then enough times, then when they reach the point where they are ready to take action, they'll remember and they'll come to you. Yeah. So I always come back, you keep coming back to this critical thinking idea, right? Is it, um, are you doing, are you doing this, you know, TV swap slot for the ego or are you doing it for uh, for a connection and somebody to actually be able to click back and, and, and start a conversation with you? Really interesting. Well, 
and they're all lessons that come from experience. You know, I just used to assume, oh, well, if you're on TV, how many more people see you? You know, that's got to be the ticket. And then you do it and you realize, oh, gosh, I didn't even get a single phone call. Oh, okay. And then you talk to other people and you find, oh, okay, they had the exact same thing happen. So, you know, the only way really that you'll learn any of this is through, you know, trial and error. So, again, don't. Don't put yourself down if you've gone and tried something. I know, again, on social media, people go, oh, but I don't have much of a media following or I did a Facebook post and no one clicked or engaged on it. That's okay. A lot of what we have to understand is that you do a Facebook post. If you only have 100 people following, probably only one person saw that. And once you learn the stats and you realise, well, only 3% of people who see something will actually take action, well, then it's not about you. It's not your fault that you did a Facebook post and no one engaged with it. It's just the numbers didn't stack up. Yeah, that's a really good one to remember, the 3%. Um, now, I know that you've got a lot of um, calculators on your website. I just, I'm just interested to see um, when people come to your website, do they engage with those calculators? Is that something you've seen like traffic on from your website? Is it? I'm just trying to think from a financial advisor's point of view to have calculators on their website. Yeah, look, it's a handy tool that I'll later go and point clients to and direct them to because the main idea behind Women With Sense was I wanted to be a go-to resource so that if there was a problem you were trying to solve, if it's financially related, I want you to go there to go and fix it. Um, But it's not the thing that will drive traffic to. And it's really fascinating to see the sorts of articles and things that um, people are usually picking up on. But often searches around property, searches around budgeting, those sorts of things. So it's usually those blogs and articles that tend to have the highest click rate and the most traffic going to them rather than the calculators. But I still think that it's valuable to have those things on there because once they've consumed some other content, hopefully then this the calculators are helping them spend more time and continue to engage with you. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, the calculators to me seem like a smaller part. The actual physical calculation seems like a smaller part than the emotional decision-making piece that needs to take place in their, in their mind. Absolutely. Yeah. Now I wanted to talk about the uh, being the um, certified money coach. Uh, what sort of led you into that um, and, and how did you go about it? So I had been looking for something along those lines for quite a while now because the more I worked with clients, the more I became curious about learning more about behavioral economics and behavioral finance, you know, because I thought, gosh, I've, I've sat with these clients, I've told them what the answer is, you know, they've gone and asked for something and they're still not getting taking action. You know, they wanted to switch super funds or they wanted to have an insurance policy and here it is on a silver platter and why aren't they taking action? What's going on? So I started to learn more about the psychology of money and I thought I really want to be trained more, you know, properly in how to do that. I've self-directed myself a lot through books and all of that, but I want some more formal training and I couldn't find anything in Australia. I was Obviously, there were life coaches and life coaching certifications, but nothing specifically around money. And then it was actually my colleague, Lee Shadell, who reached out to me and said she'd been doing work with the Money Coaching Institute in the USA and that the founder of it was coming to Australia to do some training. And I thought, absolutely, sign me up. Like, I'm all there for it. And truth be told, at least for my business, it was the best decision that I made because it was literally like the last missing piece of the puzzle and once I started offering that coaching service together with sort of the financial education and financial planning components that just made things flow so much better because it meant that when clients came in and they had a financial 
problem or they had a particular goal that they were trying to work towards, we were also able to unpack very quickly things along the way that may have been sabotaging their progress or fears that may have been holding them back so that now, you know what, now they're actually going and following through and it's really fantastic to see. Yeah, I know in that program there's a lot um, to do with the idea that, you know, everyone's different and there's a, there's a number of different archetypes of different ways people think and then the, based on the way that they are, it should be, you know, you should be approaching them in a different way. Do you want to give us a bit of an overview of that? That's right. So the program is based on, first of all, helping people to understand how our habits are formed around money, which really for all of us is formed through childhood and the experience that we observed around us. So if as a kid we saw mum and dad arguing over money or feeling stressed about money or hiding from the debt collectors, that's going to have a massive impact on us as children, which will then go and take on through to adulthood. So the program starts with getting people to understand their own money history and helping them to start to pull out and identify those patterns of behavior and patterns of beliefs that are starting to emerge. And then we help them to group those emotions, as you rightly say, we talk about it in terms of archetypes. And what that does is helps the clients to A, group those patterns of behavior in an easy way to understand, but it also makes it a lot easier for us to sort of distance ourselves from it. Because if we identify ourselves as being, you know, at a particular archetype, it then becomes very easy for us to judge ourselves. We get defensive and we sort of want to push it away. But when you start to recognize that, you know, and talk about in terms of, well, it's an archetype, it's not you, it's just a pattern of behavior. It makes it a lot easier for people to understand and a lot easier for them to address. So the main premise around money coaching is that if you want to be financially successful and progressive, you want to bring out the traits of what we call the money magician, which is the part of us that not only are we hard workers and in money coaching, we talk about it as a warrior. The warrior is that hardworking archetype. But the problem when you're a warrior is that it can be hard to stop. You can become a workaholic sort of not knowing when to let go. But the magician is equally sort of dreamer and warrior. We talk about dreamers as being those artistics, the creators among us. Um, but finding that balance where not only do I have a clear vision for what I want to achieve and I'm willing to work to go and get it, but I have a sense of belief and comfort that I'll actually be able to go and do it. And, and that's a hard thing to sort of get clients to get to that point because they may be hardworking or they may have a goal, but then it's either they'll fall into a victim sort of pattern where they'll say, yeah, but, but, and there's always going to be another problem. Or we've all come across the what we call the innocent archetype, which are the people that just struggle to make any sort of decision. And in the end, they'll get too overwhelmed and they'll bury their head in the sand. Um, we talk about it. We also have the tyrant archetype, which are the people who are very much about that status and the control that money gives them. And then we also have the fool archetype, which are those who make very impulsive decisions. And the fool might be, you know, they might have um, a tendency towards retail therapy or something like that, but it could also be gambling. It could be being impulsive with starting up a business, the business failing, and then them diving right into the next thing. Now, the power with you as a financial advisor, understanding these characteristics and patterns of behavior that clients sort of can fall into 
if you can go and recognize that, you can adjust the way that you talk to them about money and you can adjust the strategy they, to better enable them to actually follow through and achieve their goals. So if you understand that someone, for example, grew up in a home where they had parents who had a, an alcohol or a gambling addiction and now they're fearful of ever losing money, if you have an appreciation for that, you can better help them to structure their finances in such a way so that that fear and anxiety isn't such a trigger for them. But the same token, if you know that there's a client that really struggles with making financial decisions, you approaching them and giving them five different things that they have to go and do right now, look at your super and the insurance and all of that, you will overwhelm them and then they won't do anything all over again. So it's a really powerful tool. Uh, as a starting point, I would suggest looking up Deborah Price and the Money Coaching Institute. She has a couple of great books that are also aimed at individuals as well as couples, just to help you understand more about the psychology of money and how that is sort of represented in the way that we, we manage our finances day to day. Yeah, some very, very valuable uh, insights there in that last few sentences. Um, and I think uh, planners will be able to turn around and look at this uh, and listen to that and say, oh, I recognize all of those things in different clients from time to time. And it could that it could just be that, you know, sometimes they're sometimes they're the fool and other times they're the magician. But thank you so much for sharing that. Now, um, what have you got planned for the future? Where, you know, like obviously the last, uh, you know, you've done so much over the last couple of years, but what from now sort of looking forward 2021, what are your thoughts and plans on the future? Yeah, so I'm one of those people I struggle to sit still. I like to be busy. <laughs> so um, from a women with sense point of view, down the track what I'm really interested in doing is rolling out some more uh, couples coaching around money to help people to navigate and minimise the arguments that they have around money. Um, but I'm also working on a very exciting project at the moment, which is a sort of a women with sense spin-off, you may like to call it, which is called advice with sense. So it's all about looking at how do we bridge the gap at the moment that's there, not just from an affordability of advice point of view, but I feel like there's a gap at the moment between consumers and advisors. And so on the one hand, we have consumers that are constantly wanting more value. They're wanting more engagement from, from their advisors and more of an ongoing relationship. But at the same time, the poor advisor, I would say we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. There's been so much red tape, so many changes in regulation. The costs of running a financial planning business are growing exponentially. So you're going, I can't be everywhere at once. Like, how do we go and do this? How how do we keep our clients happy and you know stay afloat and stay stay sane so the idea there is that advice would sense will support financial planners by basically instead of the advisor having to become an expert and create an online course and start driving that online community engagement we'll be able to do that for them and run a vip client service that then basically maintains that relationship for them so that then at every step in the along the way when the client needs the advisor support they sort of get directed back to them whereas at the moment they'll sort of go off into the ether they'll land into a facebook group they'll be told lots of different things and who knows then you know what they'll end up doing with that information so in this way you're sort of managing to um, sort of maintain that relationship more directly with them and better support them on their journey so yeah, yeah a few different well, things 
there in the works. We'll see how great points. Yeah, a couple of great points. So you're right, you know, your clients are going to join Facebook groups. They are going to be part of other conversations outside of the, you know, the advisor. Um, so it's, it's, it's always good to be able to then offer that and then know what's coming out at it. And also that not all planners and advisors are great at building online courses. They might be just the, the thing they want to do is just spend time in front of their clients. And so be able to outsource that or really just uh, bring something in that's already created is a great idea. Oh, thank you. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I found the same sort of thing. It's practically a full-time gig going and doing all of that. So when can you manage to do that? And not just with creating the content, but getting confident and comfortable with speaking and, you know, being engaging in the way that you deliver the content and communicate that that in itself is a piece of work and not everyone, you know, some of us, and I say us as well, I'm always an introvert. It took me a while to sort of get comfortable speaking in front of the camera. So, you know, what do you do in those cases? You know, how, how can you be everywhere at once? So hopefully this will help to support everyone and sort of start to bridge some of that divide that's been there. Brilliant. Thank you. Now, uh, Natasha, if somebody wants to continue this conversation, what's the best way they can get hold of you? Uh, check out my website, womenwithsense.com.au. On there, there's a contact us button and you can drop me a line or if you like, tash at womenwithsense.com.au and you can send me an email directly. Fantastic. And if you're, you listen to this podcast and you wanted to join a conversation or be part of it, uh, then jump over to the XY Advisor app and, and, and start a comment or a conversation and we'd be more than happy to jump in there and, and comment and be part of it. So, Natasha, thank you so much for giving up your time and, uh, and sharing with us today your story, your incredible story, by the way. Really appreciate it. No, my absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, there you have it, peeps. Another episode of the XY Advisor podcast uh, coming to you. Uh, it's Fraser Jack here. And of course, I'm here with Emily and we're about to do some shout outs. Hey, Fraser. How are you going? My uh, favorite day of the week. It's a pretty good time of the week, isn't it? We get to put some praise on people and enjoy it. Oh, I love it. I love it. Okay. First shout out for today goes to XY advisor, Chris Smith. He just sparked a really great discussion and this has come up uh, multiple times in the past. So I love when this gets uh, repurposed or rehashed, but he has said he's finally looking to revamp his ongoing services packages after about 10 years of not necessarily uh, giving it too much TLC. And he put it out to the community and he wanted to know uh, what is everyone else doing? What are other advisors doing to wow their clients and create a really great ongoing experience? And there's already been a handful of great comments. So shout out to the advisors, Dylan Martin, Clint Neese, and a few others who have already uh, shared what they're doing at the moment. And it's just a real um, testament to that whole concept of collaboration over competition. I talk about it all the time, but to see it in action where advisors aren't recreating the wheel, uh, and helping each other out is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there are some really interesting comments on there. I'm, I'm keen to find out a little bit more about some of the, uh, the, the surveys that have taken place. And of course, you know, my favourite uh, idea is just to um, start a podcast. I think <laughs> well, it might be a little bit biased here, but podcasting for your clients is a great opportunity to add to your, uh, your yearly proposition of what you provide to your clients. So anyway... Uh, big shout out to Chris. Well done, mate, for starting that, uh, that conversation and uh, to everybody who got involved. 